This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Uh, you are on Bite Into It, uh, where we discuss computing, uh, new technology, uh, the internet, uh, everything uh, that you want to hear about. Uh, tonight behind the desk, it's Joe Eaton. Joe, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Good. Uh, have you had a good week in technology? Has it been working for you? Not so much? Uh, we had some updates at work today, ah. so that was nice. Was it smooth? It was smooth. That's always handy. <laughs> um, also, Cade DM. Cade, how hey. are you? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. Um, we we're just talking about Faraday cages. What's what's your week in tech been like? Uh, ever, given that I'm into privacy, every week's a terrible week for me in tech. Oh, okay. <laughs> were you exposed this week? Did something happen? Or well, I guess we'll talk about that in the news. But um, yeah, a little bit. Mm. Um, just another week, another major security breach, things like that. We will come to that. Um, I'm with you too. Also, I'm Warren Davies. Um, Technology has always been a, uh, or played an important role in art. Artists are often the first to make use of technology in uh, interesting ways. Uh, Linda Lucas, who's a Finnish computer programmer, children's book author and illustrator, and also founder of Rail Girls, which is a, a massive program around the world, will be delivering the keynote at the Fusion of Art and Technology at NGV in Melbourne next week. Uh, she joins us in a few minutes to talk about that theme, technology, art, how do they work together? Also, one of our, our favourite dates in the music calendar in Melbourne is almost upon us. Um, Square Sounds is probably a Melbourne institution as it is in other cities around the world. Uh, it's on Friday and Saturday in Melbourne this week. So if you love technology, if you love music, if you know about chiptunes, or even if you don't, uh, you want to get along to that and check it out. Uh, Alex, aka, I'm going to get this wrong, but uh, dot, dot .ay or dot .a is, uh, is going to be joining us and he'll, he'll even tell us how that works. Uh, I'm not hip. To chip tune, so unfortunately, we'll come to that later. Um, before we have those chats, um, we will be taking a look at what's happening in uh, tech news here and around the world. Um, one of the interesting things that was causing havoc um, uh, in lots of places: Amazon Web Services. Um, if you uh, have built a site or if you've wanted to host a site, um, you've probably come across AWS um, at some point. Um, they lost a, a large part of um, their services um, for a, a substantial amount of time um, over the past 24 hours. It was causing a lot of trouble. Um, so Trello, Quora, if this, then that. Um, there's probably no rule for if AWS goes down, <laughs> um, go to another website and fix up some rules. It doesn't really happen that often. Um, it's a major no. part of one of their... Um, the actual content um, distribution networks. Uh, that's a really interesting story because it shows how, like, even though the internet is highly decentralized um, by mm. its nature, it's actually consolidating into like these mega structures, if you like. And so, when one of them goes down for a little bit, uh, it's kind of like you know, as you, we were joking before we came into the studio, Trello is down. What do we do? We go and eat lunch because there's nothing else to do. We do. Um, so I mean, there's always there's always other ways to to sort of get sources of information. And I mean, I do feel for some of the people who whose business you know relies on this, or um, people who rely on the services. There's a lot of um, really important infrastructure, uh, not just some of the you know um, great services that are. Um, that we use hilariously uh, is it down right now.com was also down um, so even sources of what I was down I guess that's self-answering isn't it it is is it down right now yes is it down right now <laughs> if you can't get into it 
Um, that's interesting. Um, one of the other things that was interesting was um, updates to the NBN website. Um, we've been talking about this for years. Um, when's it coming to my neighbourhood? Um, how can I watch the progress of it? Uh, Joe, have they tried to help us out in a way here? Yeah, they've just made some updates to their website. So you can now find out through that website whether you can get NBN. And that is whether it can be connected at your home or your business. And not only will it tell you when it's available in your area, you'll also be able to find out through that service whether you can purchase it from a retailer, so whether you can actually get it connected Mm. up once it's laid. Mm, Interesting. Um, They're hoping to reach um, this month uh, around 4 million premises or about a third of Australian homes and businesses. So I don't know, it feels kind of slow. Um, maybe, Maybe I was just kind of sort of optimistic about this, but um, I kind of felt like the rollout was going to go a lot faster and maybe a lot of Australians did as well. They're hoping to complete it um, by 2020, but 2020, 2030, something like that. Have you visited the new site yet? Do you, do you I any? tried to load it just before, but it said the maximum <laughs> number of connections had been reached. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a triple R thing. <laughs> oh, it's <laughs> Maybe. Um, have you had a look yourself, Kate? Or? I have not yet. I actually, that was the first time I'd actually heard of that one flew right under my radar today. Mm. Um, but I think that sort of transparency is well overdue. I mean, it's the first step and I think a lot of stuff that needs to get better and improve with the NBN, but like that's a good first step. Um, and if it's as simple as it's build, um, then that would be really, really helpful for a lot of people because there's a lot of confusion around that, I think. Mm. Mm. Um, one thing that has been some confusion around is uh, security. Um, uh, Cloudflare, what's going on here, Kate? So uh, Cloudflare, which is a service that provides um, a lot of, I, I guess it's almost a simple way of putting it. It's like a, a middleware between uh, the sites that you connect to and your machine. Uh, it's a very, very simple way of, of describing this service. They had a, uh, a leak that uh, threw a software bug in their middleware services that... Um, essentially leaked uh, authentication tokens of a large number of websites. Now, Cloudflare is used uh, in all sorts of things like uh, to prevent denial of services attacks, to help with load bearing for large popular websites and things like that. So it's actually used by a large number of um, very, very popular services. And this this, um, memory leak... um, is fairly scary. For, so for a period of several months, uh, it, it, it's basically uh, been vulnerable to, you know, sending authentication tokens and, and credentials um, from all of these popular sites, you know, including things like uh, uh, com, so two-factor authentication services, Uber, uh, Zendesk, Yelp, Medium.com, um, all the stuff we all use, yeah. Yeah, like these seriously huge apps. Okay, Cupid was another one that was affected, things like that. So When is it not affected by those kinds of things? Yeah, well, <laughs> um, up to 4,287,625 sites may be at risk, which is, you know, a fair chunk of... And the other problem with that, of course, is that a fair chunk of the most popular sites in the world make up that list as well. Uh, not all but, you know, a large number of them. So um, if you do a search on um, github.com for sites using Cloudflare, you can actually find a list of every single site that's been compromised. And if you visited them within the last six months or so, it's a pretty good idea. Actually, it's a very good idea that you go and change your password. Um, it's ob- this, this bug has been considered like the, the heart bleed um, of, uh, of 2017. Cloudbleed, they've called it. Cloudbleed, yeah. So... so Heartbleed being a um, another bug that was in um, secure web transmission, or secure um, web 
technologies, mm. <laughs> trying to be simple here again, um, that basically meant that it was uh, vulnerable, very vulnerable to attack and, and, and man-in-the-middle attacks. Um, yeah, go and update your passwords again. Oh. Maybe something that we'll be updating its password is um, one of the AI programs uh, created by researchers at Microsoft and the University of Cambridge. Um, this caught my eye, the system called DeepCoder, um, solved basic challenges uh, of the kind set by uh, programming competitions. Apparently, uh, AI has learnt to code itself by stealing code from other programs and, uh, and other software. So that rather than author it, just lift it and stitch it together, which is great. You know. Isn't like that how, how everyone learns how to code? Yeah, yes, so like it's, be- it's become a really shoddy developer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, it's efficient too. So um, interesting. Um, ultimately, the approach could allow non-coders to simply describe an area for a program and let the system build it, um, which is great. So just a, a little snippet to go out, um, steal this, build this, make that and I'll focus on other parts of the site or what have you. I wonder if that then has all of the implications of like do, do all the bugs carry across and all the, the flaws within the software? I guess it probably does. Mm. Or maybe they'll they'll get to work on that as well. It never sleeps, Kate. It's just up there doing it, figuring <laughs> these things out um, in, at great speed. Um, interesting. Um, uh, there was um, another update uh, to the Nokia story. We talked a little bit last week uh, about one of our favourite phone brands. Um did you want to tell us about? Are you a are you a Nokia fan? Did you have uh, a I Nokia's did. back in the day? I did. Yeah. Um, the Nokia thirty three ten. There was a rumor last week, which we talked about um, mm. being released, um, and at that point, it wasn't a, a given. It was still very much a rumor. Turns out, Nokia released four phones, um, and they look pretty good. There's like a the Nokia six, the five, and the three. These are all um, sort of flagship phones. Mm. Uh, they vary in price with the six being the most expensive and the three being the least expensive. Mm-hmm. It's very obviously targeted at the middle to lower end of the market. And then, of course, they did in fact launch a Nokia 3310, mm. um, which is basically like a feature phone in the 21st century. Um, and the probably somewhat sad part about that, somewhat funny and you know somewhat interesting part of that is that the 3310s has sort of overshadowed the rest of that um, announcement. So... If you're aware of Nokia's new phone lineup, it's probably you're probably more likely to know more about like the 3310 because that's the one that's been sort of um, leading the story. Um, but it's interesting. It's a you know forty nine dollar phone. Um, it does a handful of things really well, uh, and it doesn't work in Australia because it needs two G connection. Oh, that's unfortunate. So I'm sorry if you're going to buy one. <laughs> I wasn't. I wasn't. If you do like your art and you do like your technology, uh, we do have a event coming up for you uh, next week at the NGV. Uh, there is a talk on the fusion of art and technology. And uh, speaking uh, at that event uh, is Linda Lucas, uh, who joins us on the phone now from uh, Finland. I think that might be right. Is that right, Linda? Yes, Helsinki, Finland. Helsinki, Finland. Uh, what what time is it over there? Uh, it's 10 o'clock in the morning, so oh. today is just starting. Perfect. You might have uh, some toast, a cup of tea. I may be wrong. Yeah, coffee. coffee. I'm actually sitting in a cupboard, I just told earlier, because there's a construction site over my office happening, so an unusual day for me. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, so uh, thanks for making time. It, uh, it looks like a, a great event next week, and uh, we'd we'll be very interested mm-hmm. to, to hear from you when, uh, when you do visit. Uh, what are you most excited in, in talking about? What's the, the first topic that you want to raise and, and um, have us think about? So I, I think uh, it's like 
the event perfectly aligns with my philosophy, which has always been that if programming and code is the next lingua franca, if our kids learn about JavaScript and Python and Ruby programming as their first foreign language, what we need is instead of grammar classes in school, we need poetry. And what I mean with that is the idea that that programming and coding is a is a mean of self-expression, a, a way to sort of showcase your creativity in a, in a way that kids would do with pens and papers and Lego blocks and uh, and paint in the past. And I think, yeah, yeah, it beautifully aligns the idea of art and technology with, with that philosophy. And, and you have looked a, a lot at uh, how children uh, read and learn. Um, you have written a, a book and, and you're an illustrator as well. Um, mm. do, do you think there's a natural fit between children who are sort of curious at a, at a young age and, and coding? How, how do you see that working in, in your experience? So I think programming sort of historically has been geared towards, or programming education has been geared towards kids who learn best by sitting in front of computers and learn best by reading and, and sort of mathematically, logically able kids. But in reality, I think if we are to to really like see a better world built with better software and better problems um better problems solved we need to like encourage all kinds of learners to learn about technology and it really starts when you're six years old the, the sort of um, attitudes and, and ideals you get at that age really carry you like carry with you into uh, adulthood and I wanted to write a storybook for that generation to so, show that the world of technology can be very colorful and exciting and adventure. So you, ha- you have written a book, um, Hello Ruby, Adventures in Coding. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it was um, considered by Kickstarter to be the platform's most highly funded children's book. What is, yeah. it, what is it that you think that resonated with people and, and what, what sort of made it so true based on, I guess, results? Yeah, so, I, so when, when I wrote the, the sort of pitch for the book and made the video, I had no idea what I was doing. I, I had never done a children's book before. I didn't consider myself to be like a good illustrator or, nor a very good programmer to that matter. But I think um, there was a few elements. First of all, I had this community of people around the world uh, called Rail Skills, which has been fairly popular in Australia as well, which is a sort of a weekend workshop that teaches young women programming skills. So there was this element of trust from the, that community uh, that wanted to say, that, hey, like, please make your book and please make this a reality. Then there was this, like, bigger and broader excitement around programming education. This was uh, three years ago that the book, uh, the Kickstarter project was launched. Um, and people just wanted to see different kinds of products. You're right. Um, so it actually led to you uh, being named the, the digital champion by the uh, EU, I think, in, uh, in 2013. Yeah. Um, how, how, is, how has your life changed? Are you doing different types of work uh, <laughs> after the book? Um, yeah. I, I feel like I consider myself to some extent being an artist right now. I come from sort of the tech and startup ecosystem and for the longest of times that was kind of my career path to, to work in technology uh, through like company building and through those kinds of activities. But I feel like through starting my own project, I've started to observe my work through the lens of artistic sort of creation. And uh, currently I feel like I, I travel a lot. There's this very big global interest around these topics. So I do a lot of work in Japan and in US and um, I always felt that the book goes beyond the first book of, of like uh, computational thinking and coding, 
and um, I've actually written a second book about how computers work and now I'm working on a third book which is how do you explain what the internet is for kids who never had a way of disconnecting uh, from the internet so I feel like hopefully this will be my my career for the next 20 or 30 years. I'd be interested to know whether you uh, find that children and their grandparents um, are, are communicating on, on some kind of level. I, I was always interested speaking to my uh, granddad about explaining the internet and what it is, and it's kind of like a tube and a bunch of information flows down it. Do, yeah. do, you, see, do you see sort of uh, mixed generational conversations coming up from, from the work that you do? Or? Absolutely, and, and I think it you're right in the sense that it goes both ways so um a lot of adults come to me and say that i have no idea how to teach these things like what is programming for kids um but i think that's the sneaky thing about good children's literature it speaks to different like different ages of of uh people uh when i think about the most sort of profound um children's books of my own youth they they the stories really stuck with me and and they've stayed for years to come so definitely adults can learn new things from the books but it goes both ways so so i think we as adults have a responsibility towards our kids to really explain these things and be curious with them um and in some ways the word digital native is is very deceiving it's almost as ridiculous as saying that all our kids learn english by just being surrounded by english-speaking people all day long like we don't need to teach them grammar or we don't need to teach them uh to read literature and i think the same applies to technology like our kids don't learn technology by osmosis by just being able to use computers or tablets or phones all day long we we as adults we need to like ask those philosophical and moral and and uh, sort of demanding questions also about where we are going and and also about the history of technology where we come from um that sounds really great uh you co-founded uh, rails girls um can you tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about rails Go- girls and what its goals are and um and and sure. how it's spread around the world yeah so like a lot of things in my career it has been a very happy accident so uh, i started rails girls in 2009 as a way to sort of build a community that i wished existed at the time um, of like-minded women and men um, for a beginner programmer to feel like it's okay to ask questions and sort of get started with programming and this was a little bit before all of the boot camps and and like these programming collectives that sprung up and um it was done in helsinki but pretty soon we got interest in from interest from singapore from a guy who said that hey like could we do this in singapore and we're like yeah sure like <laughs> we've never been to singapore let's go over and and interest started to pick up and and um it's a weekend workshop that relies heavily on on experienced programmers the ruby community to mentor and coach people so from the get-go it was clear that this was not like a business it was a community it was a movement uh, of people who wanted to make the world of technology more approachable for people so we decided to open source the curriculum and put it online and and like allow people from all over the world to start organizing rail skills events to show like how magical and fun the world of technology can be and i think to date rails girls have been organized in almost 300 cities around the world ranging everywhere from Belo horizonte to berlin and from adelaide uh, to amman and where i'm really excited to see like uh things changing is is in the middle east in african countries where i could have never ever imagined uh this event format pick up and yeah 
it's been a really magical and exciting thing to see happen. That was actually going to be my next question was like how many um, cities uh, and countries that's in. Um, where have you seen um, the most enthusiastic responses? And I guess because Rails Girls is really, uh, it ch- kind of in some ways um, steps up to the the uh, male-dominated uh, world of tech. Uh, are there areas in which you're seeing like breakthroughs and, and uh uh, good adoption not good adoption the word I'm looking for is like mm. in, in an embracement of um, of that within the existing tech culture like are there specific areas of the world where yeah. you're seeing that so I'd say Berlin has been very active and, and there's actually a rail scale summer of code like this uh, I think it's the fifth year that they're organizing it this this like effort where they are funding uh, women who want to start working on open source for for one summer alone and that's entirely like run by the Berlin team um, I think uh, the excitement is really tangible like saying uh, in Eastern European countries there's been 600 applications for for one event done in Croatia if I remember correctly um, but I think even more important is that is the fact that people are coming together and and I've always said that I think rail skills hopefully won't be needed in a few years time that in a few years time it will be so like easily acceptable that oh like of course women can become software engineers that we won't need like a separate uh, event type to to welcome women into this industry uh, that being said I think at the time it's still sorely needed and and uh, we've always relied heavily on 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 the existing programming communities to um, to sort of welcome people into that community and that's why Rails Girls events are only one workshops one workshop events for the weekend and the goal is to sort of funnel people into the existing tech community and through that really change how how tech communities are built and and sort of the dna to make it more approachable and more diverse so linda you will be speaking at uh, at ngv next week uh you are delivering a, mm-hmm. a, a keynote uh, on the 7th of march uh do you have a, a favorite piece um of art and technology <laughs> Uh, I guess in a connection to the the thing that you're talking about, maybe as an illustrator, um, yeah. what, what's your favourite piece of art meets I technology? Really, really. So I really, really love the work from Team Lab, which is a Japanese collective that really merges this like wonderful experimental. Um, like digital pieces, but I'd say my favorite example is probably from the kids I work with. So we have this exercise called algorithms and art, and we take a big piece of cardboard paper out and I give each kid an algorithm and when you say the word algorithm for an adult they they panic and they feel like it's a massively big and scary word but the kids really like it it sounds like a it sounds nice in their mouths and and the kids know that it's really a like an algorithm is a step-by-step uh, solution to solving a problem and one kid's algorithm might be to draw blue dots on that paper and another kid's algorithm might be to uh, draw like a green circle around each blue dot and and a third kid's algorithm might be to draw a red line from each a blue uh, dot and so forth and so forth. And, and the kids create this uh, beautiful, like, algorithmic piece of work in, in roughly 20 minutes. And, and we observe it. And, and then we have a discussion around, like, what does it mean to create and, and how humans are different from creating, that a, uh, from computers, and that a computer could create with the exact same instructions, pieces of algorithms and, like, 
digitally make like a million copies of these in a nanosecond. For a computer, it's easy to sort of reproduce things uh, according to rules. But what a computer could never say is that, oh, this piece of artwork makes me feel busy or it makes me feel excited. So, so at least today, computers still lack that perception and, and that sort of emotional response to artwork. And, and it's really fascinating to have these discussions with kids who, who really, uh, in the end, like grow up in a radically different world than we do. And, and probably when they do grow up, computers will be able to offer interpretations of artworks that almost sound like human human interpretation. So those are kind of the topics I'm going to be discussing in the in in the talk. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to being back in Melbourne. It's been, I think, two weeks, uh, two years then the last time I visited. So, and also it's very cold here in Finland right now. <laughs> so winter time. <laughs> um, if you are interested in getting along to see Linda speak, uh, you can visit uh, ngv uh, Melbourne um, or just chuck ngv in. Um, I think it, um, yeah. Um, there is a price, but um, get along. It's probably worth hearing uh, some more. Definitely from worth hearing. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. More tales, uh, Linda. Thanks so much for for uh, sitting in a cupboard and uh, and getting on the <laughs> phone to us on the other side of the world. We really appreciate it. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> uh, we are now joined in the studio uh, by Dot A. Uh, thanks for coming in tonight. That's totally all right. It's it's very good to be here. Um, it is kind of warm, but like a good <laughs> night to be indoor playing games, playing music. That's is, true. That's very true. Is that what you'd usually be doing on it's, a Wednesday? Uh, recently, yes, because uh, Square Sounds is coming up and mm. I've been kind of re- rehearsing, I guess. Um mm which kind of involves sitting down with headphones and my Game Boy and <laughs> working on tracks and that type of thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, realistically, I've been kind of making Game Boy music for a little bit too long and this is the first time in a while that I've tried to work on some new material because um, uh, I guess it's a very limited palette and it, mm. it uh, takes a lot out of you to try and <laughs> come up with new, new ideas for it. Kind of like the Keith Richards of Game Boys. Just kind of, there's only so many times you can throw it against the bedroom wall. Well, that's that's what what I kind of end up thinking, and then you know you come at it again, and or you hear someone else do something, and you're like, what? Okay, maybe I need to try and pick my game up, so to speak. For uh, for people who don't know what Square Sounds is, how, how would you explain it to somebody who lands in Melbourne this Friday and is looking for something to do? Yeah, well, it's uh, effectively a, a festival based all around artists, both visual and audio, that uh, enjoy creating with old consoles and old computers. Um, basically, anything that is kind of pre I'm going to say pre-2000 now because it used to it used to be <laughs> earlier than that, but we've got a fair few people uh, doing stuff with Game Boy Advance these days, mm. which is uh, a good time. And so, yeah, it, it's basically there, there's a whole kind of wide international community of people that um, make, make music and visuals um, on these consoles for performance. Um, basically bringing them out of the context of which they were originally intended, which is, you know, just Mm. playing a game. But this is flipping that and being like, no, I'm going to create something new with it. Mm. And what's your connection to Square Sounds? How how long have you been involved for? Uh, So, yeah, Square Sounds has been going for four years. And before that, it was Blip Festival, 
that happened five years ago. Um, and I played at Blip Festival Australia. That's when I moved to Melbourne and I lived with the uh, organisers of Blip Festival Australia. And then Blip Festival was cancelled and we were like, we should still do a festival anyway. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, we, we kind of started, we, we'd already started organising a lineup for the kind of mm. subsequent Blip Festivals and that, that just ended up turning into what is Square Sounds, which... The, the same kind of thing happened in Tokyo at the same time and we spoke with the Tokyo guys and all decided that a single name and a single kind of brand to work with was a good idea. And, yeah, now four years later we've <laughs> been running a, you know, successful international festival, I guess. <laughs> it's interesting. It's um, kind of the, I guess, the story of a lot of festivals. You can grow and expand and you get new ideas and new offers from people to collaborate and, and be involved. Yeah. How, how do you keep the, the brand strong? Like what's important to you guys? Yeah, guys? I mean, the one of the hardest things I think um, for us is, is kind of having it being such a niche we've re we initially tried to open it up a little bit um and and have some artists that are kind of in i guess the fringes around chip music so people that are uh, video game influenced or you know more um at one point we're trying for kind of bass music producers that do use some kind of video game elements but interestingly our audience um always kind of <laughs> went back for the they, they liked even if they hadn't heard of an artist they appreciated seeing something new and seeing something so really what what we try and do is just bring a really diverse range of acts in terms of genre because chip music is really just a medium it's the way to create something so you can have like we've we've got one guy playing this year, Danimal Cannon, who basically does like full shred metal type stuff on his guitar, and then he's got Game Boys that he's playing along to, and then that's kind of followed by you know some minimal techno, and then mm -hmm. so the whole idea is that it's kind of like no holes barred. You don't know what you're going to kind of mm -hmm. get from any one moment. Mm -hmm. um, how do you design a festival for that where you can get to anything and you don't have to put your money down on a session or anything like that? Yeah, it's it's hard. Um, we we really try and kind of map out the flow for each evening of having enough stuff. Uh, the, the, the comment that always comes up in our festival thread is too many bangers. So it's like, <laughs> it's like if there's one night where it's just all too much, it's like we need to work something else out. We need to get, you know... Slow it down a little bit. Yeah, Time yeah, for yeah. some chill wave chip tunes. Get, exactly. Yeah, totally. Get, get, someone, get someone that's a bit more in that, that kind of chill space to <laughs> mellow it out before the, the end of the evening, which normally ends up going a bit chaotic again. So what kind of... Uh, genres do we have covered tonight uh tonight this week this this this, this year this, that's the word yeah, i'm looking yeah. for <laughs> um well yeah we've got danimal cannon with with that kind of um metal style uh, seven bit hero from uh brisbane are playing who are like i guess almost just like a pop they call themselves like bit pop and it's like singer oh, nice. and it's like yeah it's it's very they actually played at pax the last two years um and yeah they're a very kind of poppy style um but then 
yeah, there's artists like 2MG from Japan who is ascent, like the most ridiculous kind of hardcore gabber, like <laughs> banging distorted kick drums. Um, uh, who else have we got? Any Anyone there's- representing Escape Room? I found out that that's a large <laughs> part of my play- playlist on Spotify and I didn't even realise it. So it's really? Like a newly discovered genre. Yeah. It's kind of like office music. Yeah. Or something like right. that. I don't think so, but I like it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and one of the things that you said earlier about um, it's a very much a visual uh, festival as well as a music yeah, festival. Yeah, definitely. For pe- for people who are excited by that, um, and you know Melbourne loves that with things like White Night and, and so forth. Yeah, yeah. What could they expect at Square Sound? Yeah, so um, we always kind of try and uh, get new visualists through. There's there's a guy from Melbourne this year who's called Cat Full of Ghosts who runs his own like electronics company and makes video synths and things like that. So he's set up like he's just basically bringing a bunch of things that he's made Mm. that just uh, it's kind of purpose-built digital waveforms and all that type of stuff, which Mm. is going to be really, really cool. Um, There's also a guy uh, who mixes on VHS. So he's got an old VHS mixer. and then the one thing that we try and do that is is kind of uncommon for especially small DIY festivals, but we try and get at least one international vis- visualist. Mm. Um, and this year we've got Raquel Myers, who um, basically creates all her visuals by live coding on a C64. So it's all like, I guess, ASCII text type stuff, mm. but uh, the character set is called Petsky. Um, and so it's like lots of squares and triangles that she basically, yeah, types in and then creates like characters and faces and then is able to move them around and do that type of stuff. I was watching a video of her and it looks like it's she's kind of madly mashing it. The, <laughs> it sounds the stressful. The C64 well. keyboard. <laughs> yeah. Totally yeah. stressful. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's pretty incredible. I, I think a lot of the stuff when she's doing it live, like she'll have some pre-saved files that she'll be able to load up to like move through but then like create some like things on the fly as well um but yeah it's it's a really um she she kind of calls it a a brutalist technique because it's so flat and so like (laughs) yeah it's pretty incredible does the you mentioned before that there's the corresponding um festivals in melbourne and tokyo um uh, did they happen roughly around the same time or what's the layout of that? Did they- yeah, so it's it's split up to be um, the, uh, basically equal parts apart throughout the year so people can go to both mm-hmm. and can and do. Um, so, yeah, our one's in March and the Tokyo one is in mid-September. And do you find you get like a lot of um, crossover of like artists moving between or collaborations that yeah, spring from that well, or things like that? that? That's one of the things that like as um, the the festival kind of curators, me and the, the two others, we very often go to Square Sounds Tokyo and there's always a pre-party the night before mm-hmm. the festival, which there is one for us as well on the Thursday night at Workers Club. And that's kind of like a, I guess like a, almost like a symposium (laughs) it's just like artists who are mainly local artists and they are not the kind of well-known ones they might be new and going to Tokyo and seeing like quite often we'll go and we'll see a couple of the acts at that Mm. like 
that pre-party and we'll be like, okay, they <laughs> should should be coming here. Yep. And similarly, um, last year, a um, artist uh, came from Tokyo to play who actually runs a net label in Tokyo mm-hmm. and saw two artists, Australian artists play, and they've now been released on this Tokyo net label as a result of that. So, yeah, there's there's a great kind of community sharing thing that happens. The, the Squares Sounds uh, Festival, is that like... Uh, Given that uh, you know, chip tunes themselves are sort of a little bit niche, although growing in popularity, um, do you? Is it? Are there other festivals? Is this the main? Is this the main festival? Like, is the one not to miss? Can you? <laughs> you know what I mean? It is. Yeah. Well, like, I mean, within uh, Australasia, there isn't really like so. Square Sounds Melbourne and Square Sounds Tokyo are the two big ones. Mm-hmm. Um, there's kind of other more regular events that aren't. As don't have as many international acts and things like that. Um, in the UK, there's one called Superbite, mm-hmm. um, and then in the States, they've been kind of they've got uh, a new one called Low Level that happens in New York, um, and there's one in Philadelphia as well called Eight Static. That um, both of those have kind of been uh, ramping up recently, but there is a bit of a hole left by there not being a Blip Festival in in America. Are you seeing uh, as the popularity of um, pop culture events like PAX and things like that uh, grow sort of almost exponentially, it seems? So you're finding between that and like the collaboration between game developers and um, 8-bit musicians that there are, that there's more people playing in venues like that as well, like that it's expanding or is it still very much separated out? No, it's, you, you bring up a really good point because the one thing that I didn't mention was MAGFest in the States, which is like a pop culture kind of expo that mixes indie gaming and a bunch of pop culture stuff. And that's actually probably the biggest chip music stage um, that they play to just like thousands mm. and it's huge. Um, and I, I definitely think that there is a fair bit of a crossover. Like we've done um, little events at PAX and things like that as well. Um, and definitely the indie games side of it is something that we're really kind of strong and in with, but it's, we always try and kind of draw this line of not being like, hey, video games. Totally. Because it's like... No, it's its own thing. It's Absolutely, like yeah. it's it's kind of it's music and visuals and live performance. But that said, we have Seven Bit Hero playing, who their live performance is like an iPhone game that you play along with the band. So there's there's obvious crossover, yeah. and we can't like get rid of it all. But yeah, um, I guess it's the lol Mario kind of thing that we <laughs> try and steer away from. Absolutely, and it sounds like there's opportunities for people to get involved. Otherwise, there's some workshops and things I noticed. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So on the on the Saturday, um, there's. Uh, workshops uh, um, there's a Game Boy Music one run by Danimal Cannon who's the um, shredding guy from, from the States who so actually is that LSDJ? yes yeah mm. so, so is that something that people who have no musical experience could get along and have a play? I say 100% yes because the last time I looked at a tracker was probably like 1994 <laughs> yeah <laughs> so it is a tracker um, there is like a learning curve but it is kind of a matter of, in terms of musicality and things like that, I feel like you don't even need to think about it. I definitely don't <laughs> in a lot of the stuff that I make. Um, but, yeah, I, I feel like it's 
one of the biggest things with a lot of this stuff is getting over that initial learning curve and things like these workshops it was only sitting down with someone else who knew like i watched online tutorials and stuff but it was only sitting down with someone else who knew what they were doing and then like them talking me through it and then even like me just being like what what do you mean and having to ask questions and stuff and the the thing is such a small community and everyone is really really supportive of sharing and basically telling (laughs) giving away secrets all that type of stuff and so um yeah I feel like if you are at all interested coming to the workshops even if you don't fully nail it there you'll meet a bunch of people who you'll then be able to hit up on messenger and things and be like what am I doing wrong um so yeah definitely if you're interested, come along to those. You can sign up for them on the website and I yep. think they're free, aren't they? They are free. And Excellent. we do have a sign up on the website, um, but realistically, if you show up, we're not going to turn people away. Uh, one group of people or uh, a big group of people that you would like to have uh, turn up is um, we're talking about getting um, more diverse uh, voices and ideas and, and different things into Square Sounds. So yep. do, do you have any thoughts on that one? Yeah, definitely. Um, well, it's it's kind of one thing that we have, have been kind of struggling with and really uh, we looked at it this year um, in terms of how big a problem it is in the broader chip music community in terms of, uh, you know, there, there's really um, a very small amount of female artists who are releasing things, who are, are working on tracks. And so for us to be able to continue having a, a kind of diverse lineup, um, it's we, we need more artists. Mm. Um, and one of the... Um, things that we're actually really um, happy about is uh, one of the people from our festival uh, who's a, a teacher up in Queensland um, has a lunchtime music club that he's, he's a teacher and he has a lunchtime music club and he's been teaching these kids chip music and he was telling us that one of the the best things about it is it's a higher percentage females to males in this little lunchtime chip music club. Um, and so we're actually going to be um, kind of supporting that more and um, giving prizes and things to some of the tracks that they're working on, like the best mm. tracks. And we're, we're kind of developing a relationship with him to <laughs> try and nurture this like really great little thing that's starting to happen. Um, and yeah, we're, we're, doing workshops in Campbelltown this year as well um, at Campbelltown Arts Centre mm. um, that essentially we, we just need more and more females involved. People to be there. Or if you're, if you're uh, for anyone out there who is uh, making chip tunes, uh, whatever your background, whatever your interests, exactly. um, if you want to get along, um, what can they do? Yeah, well, best bet is to go to squaresoundsfestival.com. If you even want to get straight to the thing, you can go melbourne.squaresoundsfestival.com. Pitch, pitch Alex really hard. Just get him in the corner, buy him a drink. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. And who, who knows? Um, Send me SoundCloud links. <laughs> that would be do, great. do all the things. Um, and yeah, we're hoping to, to continue on for, for years to come. Sounds uh, like it'll be a great night. Yeah. Thanks very much for coming in. Uh, we Thank look you. forward to, to Friday and Saturday. It should be yeah. amazing. All good. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.